New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Frank O'Connell. Frank is the author of Jump First, Think Fast. It's a memoir of his business life. Today, we'll be discussing his book and some of the things that readers can expect to take away and apply to their own lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Your accomplishments include serving as the president of Reebok Brands, president of HBO Video, CEO of Indian Motorcycle, and chairman and CEO of Gibson Greetings. You've also spent the earlier part of your career developing well-known brands at Arnold Bakery, Mattel, Carnation, and Hunt Western Foods, among other brands. One of the things that I really found interesting as I read your memoir was the fluidity with which you brought marketing into product development. And I know a lot of marketers would love to have more involvement in product development, but it's often in a different vertical. So first, were you working nominally, were you in product or were you in marketing? Because it seemed like a lot of it was integrated. And so I, I'm curious how that split worked for you. It was, it was very integrated. But what I found out early on, particularly when I was at Carnation, I was very good at product development and creative product development and positioning products. I just, there was a natural part of, you know, kind of my spirit uh-huh. um, in that in that area. But then all of it is all managing brands from that point forward. So they're highly integrated. Interesting. I wonder if, if that is something that has shifted because I would say, for instance, a lot of marketers today have all sorts of opinions on what will work or not work in terms of messaging for environmental products, but they don't necessarily have, like price point is critical, but they don't necessarily have that in to talk to the product folks. So certainly in entertainment, when you think about the product of Hulu, for example, the people who work in marketing of the content don't even talk to the people who manage the product where they're, where that content is experienced. And so there's this divide. So what advice would you give for marketers who have that same instinct, that creative development instinct with regard to how best to collaborate with their product peers, or what's the best way to approach that kind of outreach? First, it should be on the part of the people developing the product that are really bringing in the marketers. The first first thing that I say is it's not about innovating. The question is where to innovate. Mm. And that's a marketing. That's a marketing question. You know, where what markets are you talking about? How do they break down? Have you done any research? What are the needs? So innovation should, in my opinion, be very much driven by both a strategic plan and then a product plan of what products you should be you should be developing. Right. Well, and related to this, of course, is sales and and knowing your customer. And everyone talks about customer centric business. But so many businesses are really bad at it. Why do you think this is? And what does know your customer look like in practice? I think people talk a lot about it, but don't know what it looks like really, truly. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. I'll give you the best example. And I've I, for 16 years, have been involved with a $7 billion board in the food business called Treehouse Foods. 
And we are the largest global producer of private labels. We get our ideas and we take teams in to talk to the customers. So a lot of our product development is really driven by their ideas of where they think gaps are or what products would be highly differentiate their brand, their store brands. So and it in that world has changed radically. You know, we used to have salespeople that mm. were relationship people and they went in and they called on the major customers. We I, I've now have probably gone through and changed five sales organizations and now it's all strategic selling. So we no longer send in just a salesman. We send in a team. Well, what is that? So can I just jump in to to tease out a few things? First of all, who is the customer? Is this the customer of the store, the B2B customer? Is this the ultimate customer on the other end or is it both? No, and I I separate between customers and the ultimate consumer. Okay. 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 All right. So customers in this case are all the buyers for the big chains for Walmart, Kmart, you know, et cetera. Now, separately, we do a tremendous amount of research totally separately with the consumer, you know, Okay. Uh, but the, but the, in this case, it really the customer really is the person who at a retail level is buying the product. Right. OK. OK. And so so the difference in in having this sales organization that isn't just a sale, well, I guess, relationship organization that isn't a yeah. sales person. What would you say? Because clearly it's different. But what would you say is, is the the feel that's different what is it that makes it different? Well, how would you, what is the differentiator? <laughs> oh, okay. The key word here is strategic. Okay. So you're working with the customer and understanding their strategic plan and your products have got to fit into that strategic plan. So it's no longer you just taking the products you've developed in your plant and going in and trying to sell them to a customer. You're working with their strategic plan backwards into the development of your product. I see. So really it's about some real active listening to their pain points where they've decided to solve those pain points. How collaborative, if, if you see them solving a pain point in a way that you think, gee whiz, they might, based on your research directly with consumers, they could solve it in another way. Is that a collaborative thing Do you, or is it not so much? No, very collaborative. And another major tool here is often the retailers are not doing a great deal of research or highly sophisticated research with the consumer. We do that work. We do all the demographics, the segmentation studies. So in the baking business, we did a major study of the entire industry, how it segmented, what what segments had been served and not served. And And we use that then to go in and kind of be the experts with the retailers and said, look, your shelves are all set wrong. People are buying now whole grain bread. It's not just white and wheat as an example. Oh, wow. So I I would say a very collaborative effort. But we as the manufacturers are one that are driving a lot of the consumer trends and information we're bringing to the retailer. So interesting. When thinking about knowing your customers, you also had, or you were, yeah, knowing your customers, you also had a great story in your book where you're working at Arnold and 
you were getting experience baking. And I'd argue that those bakers were internal customers and that you had, so there's consuming customers, but when you're a leader and you're leading a team, there are also internal customers. Would you agree with that characterization? I, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And the stories about the bakers. And of course, in that case, I really wanted to understand fermentation better. And I mean, which is so critical in the baking process and I mean to gain respect and to help lead. I thought that that was essential for me with my baking cohort to really understand the whole process. So. <laughs> Did you notice a shift in the, the way they interacted with you before and after doing that? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, we we had a much closer relationship. And the other thing that was really interesting is because, you know, I'm always a creative guy coming in there with 42 (laughs) ideas and whatever. (laughs) <laughs> driving them crazy. You know? Right, right. But, what do you got for me it, now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but then I learned they had great ideas. And what I did was listen and promote and said, yeah, let's try and let's uh, test some of your ideas. I got another, uh, I, uh, there are lots of stories. So I have to tell you one about product development. When I was at Hunt Wesson, I came up with this idea. I call it fun-filled fries. Okay. So I said, well, if people put ketchup and mustard on the outside of fries, why don't we put that on the inside? So I had a whole lab of these PhDs injecting fries, (laughs) cheese, all this other stuff, whatever, you know, it it never did work. But anyway. (laughs) Well, it sounds like the pizza crust they've got. I I mean, I think you were onto something where they have the cheese inside the pizza crust or they have those things where it's like a burrito with a turkey inside and all these crazy things. But going back to something you said now several times is about listening. And and that's really interesting. And also a willingness to roll up your sleeves and be simply present with these different stakeholders in your process. And I sort of suspected that that was going to be how you felt about it because of when in your book, you talk about the C-suite hardwood and offices. And can you share your opinion on some of these physical perks of leadership and how they play out? Yeah. You know, the product development one and physically where, how you put together the people who are spending time innovating on products is critical. And actually, I learned that in the days of Mattel, I went to MIT to the Media Lab, very famous guy, Nick, whose name was Negroponte, who had really studied innovation. And one of the things he pointed out was, one, five people together as an optimum group for communication and for innovation. And Hmm. secondly, you ought to put those people together. Physically, they need to be together because so much happens in casual conversation. So, I mean, I completely changed all of our offices, including abandoning the big executive offices and the executive wood and mm. and develop these pods for really innovation and to encourage communication. What do you think about during the pandemic, people had to accommodate and, and now we have a lot of remote work going on. Do you think it's necessary to actually be physically co-located that that actually makes a concrete real difference. And so if you have a team that's in developing a product, they should be co-located 
geo co-located? Yeah, it's a tough one. Yes, there's a definite advantage to have people physically being together in that constant conversation every day, et cetera. Now, I now have a, a toy company called Shilling. Mm. Strangely enough, we make all retro toys, no batteries, no electronics, all the millions of jack-in-the-boxes and whatever. And we have now our product development people. First, we are in just outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. We brought in physically and put together product development people from around the country because a lot of toy developers on the West Coast, et cetera. But we had a tough time because particularly the West Coast people eventually wanted to go back to California, et cetera. So when the pandemic hit, we started recruiting skills and we didn't have to worry and fit. And fit is critical. I, I, I can't say, I'll say a lot about fit and how you assess it. But Mm. then we got people from around the country and we ended up with a pretty phenomenal team who worked remotely and interchanged. And I, and so I'm a student myself of watching how this is taking place. Hmm. I will tell you, they had a major now about two years ago, it's called NEDO, N-E-E-D-O-H. This is in the toy company in -hmm. Chilling, and it is a compression ball that has exploded now into a huge brand. It's in every Mm. toy store, every mass merchant. We're selling millions of them daily. I observed that was an outcome of all of the remote product development process. So that's interesting. (laughs) It can happen. Well, and I wonder also if it depends on if they've met each other in advance or not, and also the age of the people who are coming together, if they have experience working in teams in person, and then they can transfer that. If it's a different thing, if, I'm sorry, I just hit my mic. If it's a different thing when people are new, young employees. In your book, you mentioned fit, but also in your, your book, you mentioned corporate culture a couple of times. One of the things is you describe a lack of desire to play the political game at Time Warner. And then at Reebok, you describe the challenge of the inverse of that hierarchical situation is tribal culture in which there is more emphasis on guessing what the chieftain wanted rather than independent thinking about what would be best for the company. Now, these are very different extremes. What do you believe are the earmarks for a culture that truly supports thinking fast? You really did read the book. I did read your book. (laughs) Very impressed, gosh. Well, the other thing I've said in my book is that culture trumps strategy. You can have a brilliant strategy, but People turn companies around and people are the ones that really, you know, that really execute. So, so I think what, what I found particularly in their describe the Reebok situation was in, in this is in many of the companies that I walk into the marketing and new product development, particularly new product development is often a very hierarchical. It is, you know, there's a lot of politics in it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so what I normally do is go in and blow that up, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? And I'm also, right. And also a big believer. Yeah, I always say you never delegate innovation. But so what I would do then is put these small groups together, okay, mm-hmm. on, on specific projects where we already had agreed on on a direction, and in that would be 
the real creative designers. There'd be a salesperson, a person who understood the manufacturing side. So we'd put a small team of the critical components together. And then I would give them a lot of rope. And and typically, I would anoint one designer and say, you know, instead of going through a laborious decision product, you're going to allow work. I'm going to allow you to make these decisions. Hmm. And and then, of course, and, and that moves moves things so much faster. You don't have to come to committees. You don't have to come to the board. We don't have to review all the new product every three months and then tell you whether you can go to the next stage or not. So that is their financial. So so you really empowered them to take these financial leaps that they could, that if they felt good about it, it would, they could go for it. Oh, that's yes. really and, and you've also got to kind of to some degree remove the fear of failure. So we had murder boards on new products. So if you got to a certain stage and the product wasn't proving out or the concept wasn't proving out, or whatever, you'd say, okay, let's kill it at this stage. Let's not invest anymore. Go work on another product. Or even if we carried it all the way through, it was a failure. I never wanted anybody to be nailed with the stigma, you know, of a failure. So, right. Do you believe that it's possible to recruit for an innovative disposition? Yes, I do. What, do, we our, do? what are the What are the key questions? Uh, How do you assess that? <laughs> well, first, I think the toy business and all of the others that I've been in is I allow a lot the people who've been successful at design and development to be involved in the recruitment process. But then I've also learned, I've started, we have started using, in particular in the toy company for two years, we use an assessment process. And there actually is a great, a great tool that Dartmouth developed called the predictive index. Now, and, and what that does is it helps measure fit. It pay, it gets at what the person is really good for, what kind of a culture they work best in, you know, et cetera. And that has been a very helpful tool for us. We were making mistakes before and a lot of turnover on, on people, particularly in the creative side. And we started to use this, this index in this process. And does, God, that, we, does that help wow. eliminate unconscious bias? And does it also change, yes. you know, that you're not using certain shorthand, like, oh, they went to this university, therefore they're good, or they went to this school, or, or they went to this business prior to us. And so we assume that they're good at what they do as opposed to their actual yeah. skill set, right? Yeah. yeah, totally. The preconceived notion, it, it really gets, jumps over that, jumps over that fence and gets really at what's the fit and what are they really good at, so... That's really interesting. A, a lot of your memoir details your innate approach, listening, observing, web thinking, connecting. Do you believe those are things that can be taught? Yeah, I, I definitely do. And a lot of it is I spent a lot of time with younger people on the value of your network and how valuable that has been to me in every way, shape or form. It's the reason I got a lot of promotions is all relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, when I want to buy or acquire a company, I start looking at a company I want to acquire and start looking for anybody I know in there or anybody went to Cornell or whatever. But it, it also that building your network has a lot to do with making you happy. 
Right. You've got to live this life. It's not just about the working of it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned your disposition and how it keeps you moving. You're always go, go, go. And while you don't describe it this way, I would say as a reader, it was a bit like a pinball machine where one idea bounces off another and causes light bulbs to go off. And the question I would have is, can innovation be made predictable? Because it seems like lightning in a bottle, except you have an awful lot of bottles full of lightning. So what do you, can you, can you make it repeatable? <laughs> that, that's a good point. I don't think it's predictable, you know, okay. and, and quite frankly, I'd be off on some island right now that I own. <laughs> <laughs> so What's you're really successful, but you're an island successful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm successful, but I don't own an island. <laughs> That's very, very hard to predict. Trying to analyze my own thought process, you know, your pinball machine, I love. That's a great analogy of, you know, how it probably works to my own. I, I kind of describe it. It's like my radar screen is going all the time and things pop up in the screen. I think. Oh my God, that's an interesting idea. If I put that together with this, okay, maybe get someone else. You know, well, it's definitely it, it, web thinking, and it's conne- it's yeah. making connections that aren't obvious. That you go from working in a, a food industry to working in an entertainment industry, and there's gaming, and how those it, those aren't obvious connections. And in in some senses, this goes back to when we were talking about your predictive measure of of fit. When people are selecting staff, oftentimes they they seem to be hiring people who've done the job already, as opposed to looking for somebody who has the right mindset. So I I guess mindset, skill set, how do you you fall on that? Progressively, mindset is becoming more important than skill set. Things are changing just too fast. And so it's obsoleting skill sets at a high rate of speed. So what we're looking for is really mindset and fast learners, people that are adaptable, you know, that can change quickly. And to some degree, one of my skills is seeing things other people can't see mm. and at a much broader level. But I think mindset is becoming more important. And and it's we in most of the companies where I've been involved in, we have, I mean, I've brought designers in right out of design school mm-hmm. and put them with the older designers and give them a chance. And right. it's kind of like at Reebok, we started backing young, unknown athletes and some of them became stars. So Right. A lot of what we've talked about thus far looks at your memoir and career progression from inside the company and how you work within the company. Now I want to turn it around just briefly and think about as an individual and the things individuals when managing their own careers can learn from how you looked at your career. And I'd like to know if you have advice in terms of evaluating job offers, how people should go about that. It's funny. I'm always, everybody comes to me to coach them on the job offer. I'm also, (laughs) I'm also, I'm also an expert on negotiating contracts. I will make a note to the side. There you go. Okay. Well, so tell, share, share some of the nuggets of of wisdom. Yeah. Well, here's first, you know, I say, look, is that culture of that company right for you? Second, have you got a skill set that is probably going to be valued 
and where there's a lot of top end of the in the company for you to grow to. Oh, so smart. Okay. Yeah. And, and third is, do they really believe in development of a development of individuals? So for example, I use the, the annual review process, set up metrics so we have mutual expectations, et cetera. But I make every single one of the people reporting to me and those reviews, there must be at least one personal development program for that particular individual. So do they believe in development. The other one is I always say, look at the industry. Is it on trend? Mm. Is it growing? Yeah. Very smart. One one question, last question, you know, as we mentioned at the top, everybody will say, oh, yes, yes, we're all customer centric. And we think, but you're really bad at it. So when you're investigating, when you're assessing culture and you're in an interview and, you know, a lot of times they will say, the HR booklet. Yes, we believe in this. What are some of the ways that you can assess if it if they walk the talk? Yeah. First, I look for references in okay. the company and people okay. come to me often and I say, what companies are you considering? And I bet I can find somebody who in that company that you can talk to. So the best really is to really get references from people that are there or people that have people that have have left right and there's a fair amount on the internet but you obviously have got to be careful there but well it sounds like this is also the value of the network that you mentioned earlier which is this is it, it not only might get you the job but it might help you evaluate the job so that's a twofer the the benefit there well we've actually run through our time it has been tremendously fun your your book jump first think fast is very interesting it is a business memoir we will have a click to purchase link in the show notes great one last piece of advice for young people be fun have fun i like that yes indeed want to work with positive people fantastic thank you so much for your time you're welcome Thank you. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.